Hello, everybody. Welcome to Stable and Able Podcast. My name is Karen. I'm Brenda. And we're coming to you from beautiful Bolton, Ontario, Canada. Yes. And today we have so excited, special guest. And I'm going to, her name is Anne-Marie Coolin. She, uh, you know what, Anne-Marie, you just, you just, you just go for it. <laughs> you could do a better job. Okay. Than- yeah, tell so, us who you are and and what you're doing and your organization and and how long you've been involved in it. Well, first of all, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you about this um, subject, which of course is, as you know, very near and dear to my heart. Unfortunately, I wish it wasn't, but it is. And the reason it is is because um, I had a daughter who, at age 15, was diagnosed with an eating disorder. And um, at, that was uh, almost uh, 14 years ago now. So I've got some distance between that event and now. And she's doing extremely well, I'm always happy to say. Uh, so when that happened and our lives got turned completely upside down, I didn't really know anything about um, eating disorders. In fact, I would say everything I thought I knew was completely wrong. And, and that's typical for most of us. So um When she was very ill and uh, in treatment, I was pretty desperate to find some peer support for myself. And um, I wasn't made aware of anything locally, but I was able to find a fabulous organization in the States that provides parents with peer support. And so once my daughter did come out on the other side, I was very interested in trying to help other parents who were going through the same thing because I thought if I could save a person even one minute of some misery uh, it would be well worth it so um, I did give myself some time to recover uh, from the trauma of being in that health crisis and then I started doing uh, peer support with parents and that was um, nine years ago I started doing that through a local organization that um, provides peer support for people with eating disorders and that's called Eating Disorders Nova Scotia. And since that time, uh, because I've been continuing in this role as a parent peer supporter, I've been trying to stay on top of research um, and programming, um, you know, treatments as much as possible, uh, keep myself as current as possible. Um, so that I can, you know, be in a good position to, a lot of times what my role is as a peer supporter is curating information for people, because when as a parent you're involved in helping a child recover, it's an all-consuming task, and so wasting time looking at unhelpful information and resources is not a good use of your time, so if I can even help parents to curate some good information, helpful information, um, and then I, that helps me to stay on top of it, too. So I'm still doing this as a volunteer. And um, I work with parents one-on-one. And I also run a monthly virtual parent peer support group. And in fact, it's for family members and carers of any kind um, who uh, have a loved one with an eating disorder. Wow. That's, that's incredible that you have gone through this and have the strength to come forward and say, well, you know, I, you had not, like you'd had very little in terms of support and resources and then to turn this around. And like you, you mentioned before, a silver lining through 
all the the hell that you guys went through, you pulled this silver lining out and you're making this possible for other people to get support. And I know how much of a huge deal that is. Um, myself, when I had to go get, um, uh, I went to a trauma program, mostly because from my work and stuff like that. And the first time someone says something to you that you go, you too, you know, and it resonates with you and, and you realize that you aren't alone with this, that you're not the only person that has gone through this. And you can say those thoughts out, out loud and, and share. And I know what a revelation that was for me. Cause I'm like, now I, I've got, I've got a, I've got something, I've got somebody mm -hmm. and, but those resources are there a hell of a lot more than the resources that you guys have. So I can't imagine how important and how much it means to people that you help to be help you help them navigate through this this difficult time and have resources that they can go to that you didn't have and that you sourced out yourself to, to help yourself and to help your daughter and just how, what they're benefiting from unfortunately benefiting from your trauma. trauma but I mean that's how we can share and get, help get rid of the stigma educate people and so, yeah, what you're doing is absolutely amazing. And uh, I... well, that's why we're doing the series on eating disorders because of the stigma. And it both surprised Kay's and I, we both sat up when you said all the things that I thought I knew about the disease was wrong. And finding that out, that piqued our interest. Can you tell me some of the things you thought you knew and then that you learned well I you know first of all I thought it would never touch my family or my life so we all have that little bubble and uh then you know you see things on tv you hear things in popular culture I had actually seen a, a an in-depth show on anorexia on PBS years earlier which talked about how it affects the brain kind of like an addiction in the sense that um, we're talking about anorexia here. So when the restricting and the, and the drive to restrict is similar to the drive to get a fix if you're a drug addict. Um, so I had that little bit of understanding. Um, but what I didn't understand was that, you know, this is a brain-based disease with psychological symptoms and physiological symptoms. I I'm firmly in the camp that this is not a psychological disorder. There's something going on in the person's brain that's changed their wiring and how it's functioning that's creating these um, psychological symptoms that cr then create behaviors and ideas and things like that. And I didn't understand any of that at the time. Um, I just remember being absolutely in shock when my daughter was diagnosed and uh, I don't even think I breathed for two weeks. You know, um, I'm sure I was clearly I'm still alive, but it felt like I remember the first time I read something that kind of said, it's not your fault. Right. Um, and so I didn't even know consciously that I had that idea that it was, I had done something wrong until I read this wonderful book. Um, and I was actually sitting in the hospital room with my daughter in a chair and I was reading this book and I read this and I went, I took my first real deep breath <laughs> in a couple of weeks time. So, 
there's a lot um, to to unpack there uh, when you get that diagnosis because there's so much stigma and misunderstanding around it um, that was unfortunately perpetuated by um, treatments and um, textbooks and what they were saying about anorexia. There was a you know a, a textbook or a book written by a psychiatrist in the 80s. Uh, that positioned anorexia as, um, you know, a, the disease of a white uh, young woman whose parents were over-controlling. Okay. And so that uh, became the basis of many, many forms of treatment and therapy uh, and folklore, if you will, uh, until the 90s and um, the noughties. So, you know, there was a lot going on there that when you start learning about it, you realize how wrong that was and how much damage was done by that. Because you can see how uh, so much misinformation, um, lack of understanding can lead to so much, you know, problems and heartache because you're, you're chasing a ghost there, I guess, because that's not, <laughs> that's not what it is. And if you're putting all your eggs in the basket for that, then who's getting help here? no one right um yeah, yeah so when did you first notice that your daughter was unwell like what sort of made you go oh something's not not quite right here i was noticing some um significant changes in her behaviors and her eating um which i was ready to attribute to puberty um, and, you know, just finding her footing and, uh, but, um, I, I decided to become vegetarian and she, you know, immediately jumped on that bandwagon and as a former, you know, bacon lover, I was a little surprised, but she was okay with that. And then she announced she was going to give up junk food and I nonchalantly thought, yeah, well, that'll never last. Well, it did. Um, and then I noticed that her perfectionism tendencies were starting to escalate and bleed into more um, areas of her life. Yeah. 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 And then, um, she got ill with, uh, mono, a strain of mono that caused, um, severe, severe sore throat so bad that I had to take her to the hospital several times for IV morphine. Um, and I remember them saying there's just this strain going around that, you know, the beds were full of kids who had this horrible strain of mono, but because she had that, she lost a lot of weight. So she lost about 10% of her body weight, oh, wow. um, which I thought at the time was because of the sore throat. And what we kind of know now about anorexia is that people have the genetic makeup to develop it. Um, that doesn't mean they will develop it, but what will activate it is weight loss. And so I think that that's when things, uh, the, the disease kind of took over at that point. And so that was in November. Four months later, I was seeing a lot of different things. In fact, I took, uh, went to the doctor and said, you know, I'm seeing all these signs in my, my daughter and I didn't take my daughter with me. Um, and, you know, things like, um, you know, her body dissatisfaction, becoming more critical of herself. Uh, she was going on exercise binges 
and then she was binging overeating because she was so hungry. She was lying about reasons for not eating. Um, she was she became upset because she regained the weight she had lost when she had been ill in the fall. Um, and then she, you know, one weekend I wrote down she overdosed on bran buds. So she was trying to, you know, purge through a, a laxative because she was young. She was 14. She didn't have access. Um, and then I noticed she would start this binge eating. Um, and she was always a grazer. But like I even wrote down one night after supper, she ate grapes, cookies, cereal, candy, yogurt, cheese, pickles, you know, um, and then she started having all these uh, gastrointestinal complaints um, where, you know, she claimed to have bloating and cramps and diarrhea. And we took her, she had a battery of tests, you know, including for celiac and upper and lower abdominal, you know, ultrasounds, GI tests and all this stuff. And they all came back negative. Um, and then, um, I was observing watching her behavior online, and this was back in 2009, so social media was a pretty small deal at that point in time, but she was on a journaling website that focused on eating disorders, and it supported people with eating disorders by offering advice on how to maintain the disorder. And um, so I had noticed some of her posts were, you know, things like, um, after crying and screaming all night and smashing every mirror I could find, I weighed myself today and I'm down three pounds. I was so happy. Now I need, you know, I'm 103. Now I need to get to 95, 90. School starts, you know, okay. um, you know, all this stuff. And so I took all of these things. I'd written them out and I took them to, oh, she was on a diet plan that was 50 calories a day. Oh, my yeah. God. So this so, website that you're talking about. Um, this was other anorexics or people, other people with anorexia supporting other people and encouraging each other to yes. and how to keep the weight down, how to trick tips and tricks. Yeah. Yes, um, how definitely, to be yeah. a good anorexic. Yeah. yeah. If yes. Will. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, I went to this doctor and I said, you know, here's what's happening. And the doctor said, well, you know, I'm sure it's not an eating disorder. They're very, very rare. It might be a bit of disordered eating, but you know, really, it wouldn't be an eating disorder. It's so rare. So that was April. And at that point, I thought, okay, well, maybe it's just puberty and things are changing and I'll keep an eye on it. And then over the course of the next few months, um, as she got more malnourished, she became more obsessed with food because we know from the one starvation study that when people are um suffering from um you know malnutrition and lack of nutrition they their brain in an order to save them right mm. makes them constantly think about food so she spent the next few months cooking all the time and grocery shopping and reading cooking magazines and cooking for her friends but what i wasn't really noticing was that she wasn't eating very much if anything of but so she was so consumed with food, I started to think, well, maybe she's not. But that's a sign of starvation. It's not even a yeah, sign of that, anorexia. That was going to be one of my questions. What was her personality like? What was her demeanor like during these episodes when things were ramping up? Yeah, she was becoming uh, more withdrawn socially, um, more and more. And as she as her weight dropped, she became more and more isolated um, because she had no energy. 
because of the malnutrition to really do anything. She became emotionally dysregulated um, and could not handle any kind of stress. Um, so, you know, whereas before if some incident happened, you know, she might like go on a scale of one to 10, maybe two or three or four in terms of emotional response. She was at 10 uh, and inconsolable. So her mood was very changed. And also um, she became very quiet and very still. Okay. Uh, and it, yeah, um, so there were a lot of changes for her. And then the other really weird thing that happened was she broke her foot and um, was in a cast for quite a long time because of the, it was a Jones fracture in her foot. So it took a long, long time to heal and she couldn't exercise. And so that became a real problem for her. And then over the summer with this broken foot I, and not exercising, I noticed she was losing more and more weight. And then so I would Finally. think the opposite, in a sense, if it um, for like someone like my myself who who doesn't have anorexia, that I would put weight on because like, I can't exercise as much, and and you know yeah. I'm emotional eating because I'm you know I'm feeling a little a, a down. But so I'm surprised to hear yeah. that she lost more weight. Yeah, so like things just weren't adding up, and you know what I know now is that no child should fall off their growth curve. Like children should not be losing weight, right? Um, and, and by children, I mean, you know, right up to age 20, people are still growing even, you know, older than that. So they shouldn't fall off their growth curve, right? They should be, you know, continuing to grow and get enough calories to be able to continue to grow and maintain their own natural growth curve. Had I known any of this and checked her growth curve, I would have seen she had fallen off. Um, and because I, you know, had got this sense of relief from the doctor saying, no, it's not an eating disorder. I really wasn't looking at it through that lens, although things were getting extreme, very extreme in her behaviors. And then finally, um, interestingly enough, she had written down on a piece of paper how many calories she'd allowed herself to have for a day. And she wrote it down um, like a hundred times. She would just write, re repeat it, like, you know, repeat a hundred times what she ate and how many calories were in it, okay. which was basically a grape and toothpaste. Okay. Um, mm. And she had balled it up into a little ball and shoved it in her pillowcase. And so this balled up piece of paper came to light when the laundry was done and she had written on it that she had you know an eating disorder she knew she had an eating disorder and that's oh, when Anne I knew and Marie um she um doesn't seem like she was really hiding things from you it seems pretty open like you had access to her um uh iPad or her computer and and you were seeing these things she was trying to hide that ball of paper in her pillow slip but you found it um it's just interesting that she her physical appearance wasn't being hidden was it or was it yeah and and I'm glad you mentioned that because she was hiding it with bulky clothes okay 
and she wouldn't allow me to touch her or hug her. So she was hiding it that way. And um, part of the bulky clothes was because she was so malnourished, she was freezing all the time. So she needed that to stay warm. She, when I was looking at her journaling online, she didn't know that I was doing that. We were able to access it. And um, so, and I, you know, so she didn't know that I knew all of these things that were going on and she would make excuses for not eating. She ate at school, she ate at her friends. So she was doing her best to hide it. And one of the things that happens when this disease is activated is it, uh, it really changes and gives them superpowers in lying and deceiving and manipulating that they didn't have before. Like that wasn't in her nature at all. Um, so now all of a sudden she's, she wouldn't hesitate to protect her disease in any way that she could. Mm. When I found the note and I, you know, spoke to her about it, she immediately said, yes, I'm sick. I don't know what's going on. You know, I need help. Um, and I think she was very relieved that finally the jig was up. Uh, but then when we started into treatment, then she didn't want the treatment because that's another facet of this disease is that their brain is now wired to not want to let it go. Okay, because that that was one of our questions as well about treatment. When it came to that, she was talking to mom, talking to dad, if, if dad's available, and saying, I need this treatment. Um, she gave you the impression that she was on board with it or how she gave how, me the impression that, that she, she was scared okay and so um what happened was i immediately made an appointment for her to see the doctor and um the doctor sent a referral to you know an eating disorders referral the doctor set up an appointment for her to have um an ekg and um I called the referral line myself and they said, you know, it'll be a couple of months before she'll be seen. And I said, well, you know, she's down to 10 calories a day. What do I do in the meantime? And um, when the doctor, when she had her EKG, so my daughter, she was just going along that she was being compliant. She went to the appointments, but when we went for the EKG, it was on the third floor and she insisted on walking the stairs up to get it and then the doctor called me as soon as she got the results and she said don't, don't let her move her heart rate is so low don't let her move and, and so that was a friday and friday night i noticed that she was dehydrated and i said you know can i get you some water we were talking about what can you eat i can't eat anything and i was trying can you try this can you try that and she would say no i can't and i said why are you dehydrated she said because water isn't on my safe list anymore Wow. So that's when I knew I had to take her to ER. And then she, we took water, her to I mean, ER. And they because it would put extra um, water weight on? Because like, yes. yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. So that even though there was no calories in it, it could increase her yes. weight. When, when yes. you said yeah. 10 yeah. calories a day, like immediately. I thought out of a Tic Tac. I was just like, oh my God. Like, yeah. and you know, here's my lack of education. I'm thinking, oh, maybe they're below a thousand, <laughs> like 10, 10 calories. And that just yeah. shows that this disease is like a raging monster where, 
you know, they can look at a 10 calorie intake and think, oh, that's reasonable or maybe not reasonable, but that's, that's where I need to be. Yeah. Like, I think if I, yeah. we, we talked about on the last uh, episode about how, you know, we would, you know, we, we would try to lose a bunch of weight because for an event or, you know, an occasion, that kind of stuff. And then after that, we would, you know, go through a period where, oh, well, we're going to reward ourselves here because we did so good with that. And, but by the time that's, that we're gone past, like not eating well and, and eating, restricting it, we're, we're hungry. We're like, we want to eat. Um, but her, for her, it's the exact opposite. Like, this sounds like she didn't have that, um, that instinct that kicks in and says, you need to eat now. And I think that's where, you know, we, when you and I talked before about it being a metabolic disease, not that through the ill, like through that illness creates a, a mental health. Am I, am I right about that? Like it doesn't start off as a psychiatric disease. It starts off as this metabolical, metabolic, biological, physical disease that has mental health implications as it gets worse. Am I, am I off base on that? Well, yeah, it, the way I understand it is that if you have the genetic propensity to develop anorexia, you've already got a different metabolism. Right. In that one of the things that happens if you're in a negative energy state, so you have consumed fewer calories than your body has burned, your brain is going to produce some feel-good neurochemicals to soothe you. See, that's where and this I, is I, that's yeah. that just that it's the exact opposite as to how I would feel because my discomfort would be to such a degree that I couldn't fight I couldn't fight that. Exactly. So when you don't have this type of metabolism, this you know type of brain biology when you're in a negative energy state, your body is sending you all kinds of messages to eat because it's hungry. So it's going to ratchet up your appetite. It's going to, um, you know, keep you awake at night. It, you know, when you're hungry, it causes insomnia. And it also causes you to, your body to hold on to the calories that you do consume in a different way because it's preparing for famine and it's holding on to stuff. Whereas people with this, you know, biology, they lose weight more quickly and they regain it more slowly. So did you, and sorry, I, I was just wondering, did you find that she felt fell into it I don't think that's a proper terminology but there was no bullying at school there was no um well social media is more prevalent today and the influence that it has on our children is ridiculous um but there was nothing like that like how did she for lack of better terms then how did she fall into this what what yes yeah, so what here's happened? that's I love that question because um there wasn't any significant, you know, trauma or challenges or anything going on. Um, but when you have a brain that, that makes you feel calmer when you don't eat, it's a coping mechanism, right? And so 
she discovered at a very young age that what she ate and how much she ate affected how she felt. Well, we all had that, but for her, it was a little different. So she had food rules at the age of five that I was unaware of. Like she would, if someone at school left one thing behind in her lunch, she would have to leave two things behind in order to feel comfortable. And when I asked her, you know, this came to light through the process of looking at the eating disorder. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me about that? And she said, mom, how, how would I know that? I thought everyone was the same. I didn't know I was doing anything different from anybody else. So she had learned to make her to self-soothe by restricting, where some of us learned to soothe by eating. Some of us learned right. to self-soothe by, you know, whatever, reading a book, knitting, drinking. You know, we all have coping mechanisms that soothe us. Hers was not eating. And so what happened was as she became a teenager and, you know, the kids, their lives get more complicated and more challenging. And she was, you know, getting more anxious about just regular everyday life things. And so her anxiety, she was soothing her anxiety by not eating until she lost enough weight that the disease got activated. And then eating became terrifying terrifying like it changed the wiring in her brain it was like a switch went on yes 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 and and so whereas you know before not eating soothed her now eating terrified her more than anything else that caused her anxiety before and and so if you're a kid that has had some, you've got this biology and then you have trauma in your life and you've got things that are, you know, you're, you're, you're going to use uh, restricting to make yourself feel better to deal with whatever is happening in your life, right? So, uh, you know, divorce, death, whatever, um, if that's your go-to tool, you know, and I heard someone say, and I love this comment was that if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So <laughs> if, yeah. you know, and if, if, if restricting is your hammer, right, you get a hangnail, you're going to restrict, you get right. divorced, yep. you're going to restrict, right? You're going to use the same tool all the time. And I mean, these kids, they don't even understand that this is happening to them. Um, yeah. Now, do you have other family members, siblings? Um, does she have siblings? Do you have other children? Uh, the question I, 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 I was going to ask was um, what was the effect on the family um, during this period? Well, it seems like it was a, a, a long period because she was going into treatment. She was complying with you and then she wouldn't. And um, mm-hmm. how did, how did, what sort of effect did that have if she does have siblings? Yeah. Well, um, she, we, we don't have, she's our only child. And so we weren't, um, you know, having to navigate the challenges of keeping a family together in the midst of a health crisis, which is, um, it's an all consuming health crisis in the sense that um, it's, it's takes a lot of time and energy with this treatment that is the only evidence-based treatment for kids under 18. It's called family-based treatment, not to be confused with therapy because as parents, you're not doing therapy, you're doing treatment, which is basically um, feeding the child and getting them weight restored 
and then feeding them in ways that help them to stop um, the pattern of restricting, but also to try to get them to eat foods that are more difficult for them to eat and to expand and then to regain their independence around uh, being able to eat. So that's the process. And, you know, you have to feed them three meals and three snacks a day. So that's, you know, six times a day. And the time that it took me to plan the menus, shop for the groceries, prepare the food, sit with her during every meal and coach her through the meal, sit with her after the meal to prevent her from, you know, engaging in any harmful behaviors after eating. It was a full-time job. And um, I ended up taking a leave of absence from work because I didn't have any time left over. You know, there were a lot of appointments. There was, I was trying to do some research and read and learn as much as I could. And I was just basically like, as soon as one meal ended, you were, you were thinking about the next meal. Right. A little like when you have a newborn. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. You, you have a little baby that you're, you're taking care of again and, and coaching to eat or a toddler and you're coaching. Yeah. Yeah. So the good news with that is, is that we already have the skills to do this as parents. Right. It's just that we didn't think we'd have to revert to when they were 15. So, you know, it's not, it's a pretty simple task. It's not a complicated task, but it's the most difficult thing you'll ever do uh, to get someone to eat who doesn't, it's not that they don't want to eat, it's that they're terrified of eating, right. terrified. And my daughter told me that she would have preferred if I'd caned her rather than make her eat, oh. you know. A chicken sandwich, you know. Um, How much resistance so, you know, did she put up um, with you while she while you were going through this period? You know, you had to take it one meal at a time, and and it was different every day. It was different every meal to some extent. Um, in this family based treatment, one of the things you do is you they're not involved in the meal preparation or anything. They just come to the table and eat what you've presented. And the idea is that um, they're expending a lot of energy being terrified um, by every aspect of food. So if you can you know, help keep them away from some aspects of it and keep what little bit of energy they have um, to, to just for the meal itself. And um, so sometimes, with with my daughter, most of her anxiety would manifest in shutting down, crying, um, just, you know, shaking her head, um, not being able to eat. Sometimes there would be anger, and sometimes the anger would result in food being thrown. Um, but uh, she was pretty compliant with it although she would sit there and say well i'm gonna eat this but when i'm 17 i'm moving out like she would have her, her okay you know right. her, her retorts you. For this. i'll teach you yeah. yeah yeah so at meal time we would try to keep her very um as distracted from her pain and terror as much as possible so we constantly played games at at the table we played cards we played trouble uh, we played every kind of game we could think of. I always had music on. I would always try to think of conversations that we could have that might be fun, like let's plan a vacation. 
uh, just to try to keep her distracted. And then I would try to coach her when she was slowing down. I would say, you know, stop, stop moving your food around your plate. Just put it on the fork and eat it. Take another bite, coaching through, you know, every bite and every meal and just, you know, acknowledging how hard it was, what hard work it was for her to do it. Because I don't know if you've tried to eat when you're crying. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. It is very difficult. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know. And mom, you're watching this and going through this. Uh, like, my heart, it's out there for you. It really is to, to go through this on a, on a daily, on a daily basis. Now, did she have relapses? Were there times where she just said, enough, I'm not playing the games with you and dad anymore. I'm not playing trouble. I'm not. Were, were there instances like that? Yeah, she was, her, as a, even as a child, she was very compliant. I, she was the easiest child person could ever want in many respects and one of them was that she was a people pleaser and and she always wanted she never wanted to um upset me she was always compliant um so these actions of hers um were causing her i think a lot of cognitive dissonance the healthy part of her was going i, I hate doing this to my parents okay. and the disease part of her was going you're you're so weak you need to fight them right. and um so battling her, inside herself constantly as well constantly and as she got more nutrition in her um that seemed to quiet the eating disorder voices a little bit right they, they were like the less she weighed the stronger those voices were and the more we saw this version of her that seemed like um a, a bit of a you know monster to be honest um and then as she got you know closer to being weight restored um she she wasn't as consumed you know whereas before the eating disorder thoughts were absolutely 24 7 now they're maybe only you know 18 or 18 hours a day i mean still most of the day so she um was approaching getting weight restored and um then i noticed that and so then it was like my old my old child came back i started seeing the old version of her more often she didn't have that dark still energy she had a sparkle in her eye again she was engaged in life she was having fun she was enjoying herself and you see this wonderful blossoming of the person you knew and then one day Ed showed up again and she was just dark and still and quiet. And you can feel the energy. It's like, it's almost like all of the energy gets sucked out of the room and you're in this black hole of this disease that's taken over. And I remember looking at her, I looked over and she was sitting on the sofa and I looked across and I went, oh my God, that's Ed. That's Ed's back. Ed. And um, so I was, by this time she was having, um, doing her own lunches at school, right? And so, and she was doing her afternoon snack and she was engaging in some physical activities which she hadn't been able to do before. So she was not eating all of those things when I wasn't there. She okay. was, she started restricting again. 
and um, and then we were still having treatment and we were still going for visits so she was still being weighed so we were able to catch it pretty early although by this point she had with the help of her wonderful friends on the internet she had been given tips on how to um, um, add weights to her clothes so that when she got weighed oh, she would you know nice. it, you wouldn't be able to see it or she would you know drink a lot of water to try to get some water weight on um, and so we weren't really seeing her true weight. And so when that happened, we just flipped right back. And um, this great organization in the States that I mentioned, the mantra is, if I haven't seen you eat it, you haven't eaten it. So I had to get back to that. And the other mantra is life stops until you eat. So then we had to bring her back, you know, several steps and uh, pull out the, those tools again which some people collectively call the magic plate just as just shorthand for all of the stuff you do at, at stage one where you just take over. So we would take over everything um, and, and try to get her back um, in, a, in a good direction. And that happened a couple of times. And then um, a few months later, she just relapsed really hard and just put her foot down and said, no, I'm done with recovery. Like, you can't make me do this. I don't want to do this. I just want to, you know, go home and starve to death. And um, at that point, her treatment team uh, basically fired us as clients and said, well, there's nothing more we can do for you. If you can't be compliant, we will see you back in emergency when you land there. No, but is yeah. it? Oh, man. But you're, because but you're there are no second line. Yeah, I know. There is no you're second line treatment. How? much more help you need right like yeah oh sorry i mean this is i mean it's not a job i mean it is a job it's a chore it's a daily grind for you and i was going to ask you that like your daughter is going through this 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 hell this nightmare but so are you right like how like you said it her eating disorder it was all consuming for her life but it's in my was it all consuming for your life as well Yes, it was. It was kind of interesting. Upon reflection, I realized that um, I had stopped all of my life activities, except, you know, really feeding her and looking after her. I stopped work. I stopped my volunteer work. I stopped uh, all of my hobbies. I stopped socializing. I stopped exercising. Um, and I was really starved in every way, except nutritionally, I was eating better than I'd ever eaten in my life because in solidarity with her, I was eating what she was eating. Right. And um, so I thought that was kind of ironic that there I was more nutritionally well than I'd ever been probably, but oh, started in every other arena of my life. And I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't recommend that as an approach for parents to take, but that's kind of how I, uh, did it because I just didn't have the energy to do any of those other things um, for about the first three months. And then um, I went back to work and I started, you know, doing more. And then I, I would guess about maybe, um, you know, maybe a year later, she ended up back in the hospital again with a pretty severe relapse. And this the first this time she was in the hospital. Fired? Uh, after we were fired, 
Um, now I'm trying to remember the timelines of the relapse happened after that. Um, I just remember being in a fog when I left that appointment and I just, I couldn't believe what they said and what they did and feeling pretty bereft and um, scared. And so I just took it on myself to say to her, you know what, you're not going to starve to death in my, in my house. Um, uh, I will completely sacrifice our relationship for your health. You can hate me all you want, but here's what's happening. I'm going to feed you and you're going to eat it. Um, and so we kind of talked it out and did it on our own, but not very successfully. Um, yeah, so, I, but I do think that it was still another year before she ended up being hospitalized again um, for a relapse. So we were in this cycle of, weight restored relapse, weight restored relapse, weight restored relapse. But every time there was a relapse, it was a really good learning experience for me and for her because we caught it earlier, we hammered it earlier. Um, and, and I could say to her, you know what? Like you got through the last one, you'll get through this one. And it's such an iterative process. And um, so I was afraid of relapses, but now I can see what uh, valuable learning tools they were. And we all, all revert to, you know, our comforting, soothing behaviors all the time, no matter, you know, how destructive they might be, you know, we're all kind of wired in the same way and we're gonna go back. Um, the, the key was trying to, readjust my life in light of where we were and my expectations and so i built my capacity to roll with the relapses um and not be completely destroyed by them like i was with the first one well that was my next question or statement is the trust you would get up the hill and then you would build you would build your trust again and then we'd relapse. Like, how was that roller coaster ride that you'd see those the bright sparkle in her eye and I'm getting my daughter back and then we'd relapse. So when was the trust built back again that you have, I'm sure with your daughter now that it's behind you? I didn't think about it in terms of trust. Okay. Because to me, it was a disease. If it was cancer, I wouldn't be thinking about it in terms of trust. And so I never really thought of it that way. It was like, this is where we are. I know what I need to do. And I would learn new things. So, you know, a full year into her, her um, recovery with the help of the, the treatment team, that's when I learned about how important fat and the quantity of fat she was getting in her diet was. I wasn't advised about that by the treatment team at the time, but I, I read this fabulous book that I really credit with saving my daughter's life because it was written by a researcher for a science researcher for PBS and her daughter got anorexia. So like she did the research and she found out stuff. And that, that's when I learned about how important uh, fat as a macronutrient is in this situation and that 
we all need 30% of our calories should come from fat 30 to 35%. And that's not ever talked about. I mean, if you say to anybody, you know, how much sugar should you have? Everybody knows you shouldn't have any, but how much fat should you have? People have really skewed ideas about how much fat we should have. And so when I figured out that she needed more fat in her diet, um, I kind of glommed on to that and I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to try this time. I'm going to hammer her with fat. And when I started looking at the fat, I realized that she needed at least 70 grams of fat a day and she was probably getting eight or nine in what she was eating. And so by this point, she had learned to drive and had her driver's license. And I, she wanted to use the car to do something in five days' time. <laughs> So I had read this thing real fast. I said, okay, here's the thing. Right now, you don't have enough nourishment in you to be safe to drive. You're not healthy enough to be able to drive and use the car on Friday. But I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to increase your fat intake. And we'll see how you, how, if you, if you can, you know, take it and, and, and you know, eat it, then we'll see where you are on Friday. Well, within three days of increasing her fat intake, her whole personality changed. It was like a magic bullet, this fat. And so by Friday, she was doing really well. And I remember coming home from work and thinking, oh my gosh, she's she's given me the five days now. I know she's gonna say, no, that's it. I'm done with the fat. Yeah. And I came home and something really sad had happened at school. One of the little friends had been in a car accident and really critically injured. And she was so worked up and, and involved in this, this horrible event that had happened. She kind of forgot about our five-day agreement and she just kept eating the fat anyway. So, oh, you know, the universe God. supports you and yes. moving in the right direction. Yeah, so the fat thing is a really, really important. And again, if you think about their metabolism, how different it is, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's not uncommon for kids who are underweight from anorexia to need like 4,000, 5,000 calories a day just to be able to, you know, gain a little bit of weight. Uh, but the fat was key. So then once we figured that out, but what I've read is that um, fat is the big fear food for the biggest fear food for people, most people with anorexia. And it's because the disease changes their tongue and the sensation of fat on their tongues becomes abhorrent and terrifying. Whereas for the rest of us, fat is very, very pleasurable and satiating. We kind of crave it. Mm. And for them, it's the opposite. So there's a lot going on in their brains that are controlling you seem to be chomping at the bit you have a question oh, i have a million questions i because I, I just there's so much I, I just like you say something i'm like whoa and then i want to i'm trying to keep it dipped here because everything that comes out of your mouth is like all right this is this is great yeah. this is great this well you know what i mean i went to high school um with uh with a a, a woman that or girl at the time uh now that i i think about it she she was um had anorexia and bulimia and this only came out years later but i remember at lunchtime her mom would pack her lunches for her and she would take out her lunch and place it out like in a very specific way in front of her and then she would start going through it so if her mom made her a sandwich 
she would take the bread apart and look and her mom would try to sneak in you know like buttering the bread that kind of stuff and so then she would throw it out and she would be angry she's like I don't know why she's doing this kind of thing so I mean I can made me think of her like well she this is the kind of thing that could trigger her and then could justify just getting rid of all of it because her mom was trying to trick her and and things like that so when you when you said that um that you're going to increase the fat in her diet you were you told her that like you were up front with her this is what we're going to do this is part of the plan which i found like that's pretty cool that you there was no deceit or deceiving even though you would do it like i'm sure her mom did to try to get the calories in but you put the plan forth and said this is what we're going to do so i i thought that was like pretty interesting to think about how in one sense she rejected it but on the other sense as much as your daughter like probably disliked it <laughs> you at least had an open conversation about it well that's only because i was counseled by her treatment team not to um hide food and not to try to you know sneak stuff in because at the end of the day you want them to be able to eat everything you don't want them to be having to you know circumnavigate butter on the bread you want them to push through the challenge of eating the butter on the bread and do it so as much and, as mom was trying to be helpful and that's the, those are the tools that that she you know was was trying to use but she didn't have the support like i this was a small town like a small town and she was a figure skater as well so there was all this pressure on one sense and she was quite talented and so it was coming from her from all directions and then the the brain that like you said that gets triggered that gets switched on it, i think it sounds like it was like the perfect storm that that came together for her now the story of her is that she ended up becoming um a nutritionist and uh, a doctor that worked with children and specifically with nutrition and she's very well like she's well known and well respected among the community so talking about silver linings again um it was uh she definitely is a a success story i mean success story yeah i i that's the only word i can think of and same with you um like like you're an extraordinary person both you and your daughter because you've you've gone through this 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 was yeah you're amazing (laughs) because i think about what what you went through and what you you just kept going you kept even when you were fired you just kept going and going and going so like i think of the simplest tasks of feeding somebody and what you had to go through is just extraordinary yeah like all the 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 things that you did and the love and the support and and sacrifices that you made as a family is extraordinary it really really is and here you are now sharing that um all that knowledge with 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 other families Mm -hmm. and what they're benefiting from it is just uh it's incredible and it's it's amazing like we're just saying like you i so admire you for like how much trauma had have had you or have you suffered i don't like the word suffer but gone through to to work with your daughter 
And what's your relationship with your daughter like now? Well, it's just as wonderful as it was before she got sick. And this is one of the really interesting things about this disease is that the person they are when they're that malnourished and the disease is active is very temporary. And, um, you know, she hated me and she hated everything I was doing. And she would tell me that she wouldn't hesitate to tell me that. Um, and I just decided I would sacrifice our relationship for her help. I didn't care if she never spoke to me again, if she was alive to not speak to me, that was my goal. So mm -hmm. I just, you know, flipped a switch in my brain. And I said that to her repeatedly, I don't care. Right. Um, and I wasn't thinking about the future at the time. It was just, you know, this is what I'm doing Dang. right now. And then um, when she, you know, recovered, um, all of that went away and not only did it go away, but she doesn't remember most of it. And so what I'm starting to understand, and I haven't seen any research on this, but I don't think she was making memories when she was that malnourished. And so I'm wondering about the effect of uh, malnutrition on the brain and the memory process, because um, she, you know, I'll tell her things now and she has no recollection. She remembers some things, but most things she doesn't remember. And when she was that at her lowest weight, she told me she was completely numb emotionally. And it was the happiest she'd ever been in her life to be that numb emotionally was so um, appealing and seductive to her. And even now she says, mom, that state that you're in where nothing bothers you, you're just numb, Boring. numb. Um, yeah. yeah, so, you know, and and I'm, when I think about you know, the crucible that we were in is just absolutely unique to this eating disorder, which is why being able to talk to parents is so important because unless you've been through this, you can't even imagine what it's like to not be able to feed your child. Yeah. It's a special, special kind of, um, you know, challenge. And so, when when parents are able to reach out and talk to me they're just so relieved to not have to try to describe this to someone who hasn't been through it uh, yeah. that's why it's really important for them to know and you know when i start a conversation with a parent i i say to them i'm not even going to ask you how you are because i know you know you're not good wow that was a lot but it was great She's uh, an incredible woman, isn't she? I'm speechless. I, I am completely speechless. She's engaging. She's forthright. I, I can't say enough about her. It, that, was, that, was, that was really wonderful, a real eye-opener. What do you think, Case? I, um, well, I, when I had talked to her the first time and we were sort of getting you know together to look to collaborate on this and and I knew how easy she was to talk to and how knowledgeable and how she's just out there she hides nothing yeah and and just the courage to do that and the dedication and everything she put into it and how she's um helping people with this so I knew that this she was going to be amazing um for to do a recording with us and the shit I learned even more so this time around Oh, highly educated on this one. And she said it at the beginning 
of the interview of the top of the episode that all the things that she thought she knew about the disease was not even remotely close to what it's all about. So that shows you where our level of understanding is, right? Exactly. We encounter people in our life that you suspect have an eating disorder. We look at ourselves and say, yeah, we really have a, a disordered um, an unhealthy relationship with food, but this is like completely off the charts, not to diminish other things, but this is this uh, a disease in and of itself. Um, and so we talked for over two hours and two and a half, two and a half and going through it when I'm editing it, I'm thinking, okay, let's see what we can take out. And honestly, there was nothing that I could think of to remove from the interview because it was just, eye-opening, shocking, um, inspiring, just the whole thing. Her message was very powerful. There was no question about that. And the dedication of, of a mother to their child was just unsurpassed. It was, yeah. I, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed what she had to say, and I enjoyed her. She's a lovely woman. Yeah, she invited us to come to her house in Halifax and have dinner. Yeah, she may, she may rue the day that Kays and I show up at her home for a meal one day. We'll so. pull our own fork and knife out of our like uh, jacket pocket and say, okay, where yeah. do we sit? Well, I told her when she invited us, I said, this is on, this is on record. Yeah. So we can play this back. Exactly. So, you know, after listening to this again, Brendan and I both decided that we're going to do this in two parts. Because honestly, you'll learn even more in the second part or equally as much in the second part as you did in the first part. So, um, yeah, so this is where we're going to leave it today. Uh, be prepared for, for, uh, for fart two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that in there. Okay. <laughs> you know why, guys? I'll tell you why. Because when I do my checks on my mic, I go, check, check, one, two, check, one, two. Brenda, what do you do? Fart, 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 fart. <laughs> that's her. That's her opening. So that's my test. Yeah. <laughs> Only she's really farting. Not hey. Just it. <laughs> okay. We're gonna delete that. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening to today's episode. Let's remember to take the path of healing together. And don't forget to take care of yourself, take care of each other, love each other, and most importantly, love yourself. Peace, one love, one, four, three.